Hello everybody, thank you very much for downloading this episode of the Cinema Catch-Up Club. For more information, you can visit the Cinema Catch-Up Club's official Facebook page. Just search for the Cinema Catch-Up Club. Or you can visit our website, thoughtjarproductions.com. This podcast is available on iTunes and SoundCloud, and we would really appreciate your subscriptions there, so pick your service of choice. For more information about this and other podcasts we produce, please visit thoughtjarproductions.com. And now, for this week's episode. Hello everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Catch-Up Club, the podcast where we watch films that you probably should have seen by now. Uh, My name is Stephen Platt, thank you very much for downloading this week's episode. This week, we are looking at The Untouchables. That's right, 1987's The Untouchables, turning 30 years old this year, and interestingly, the book on which this film is based off is turning 60. Uh, the book written by uh, Elliot Ness, who uh, we're about to get very well acquainted with. Joining me to review the 1987 film The Untouchables, we have, as always, someone who has seen the film and someone who has not. Our person who has seen the film, returning guest, Katrina Johnson. Katrina, welcome back. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for bringing me back. That's okay. And just a reminder for the folks at home, uh, what do you do with your time between podcasts? I'm a student at uh, West Australian Academy of Performing Arts, a student of lighting. And so this this one day this week, um, <laughs> in my production schedule, I've, I've come here. Um, but we're currently doing the... Um, a production of Chicago, so oh, I'm very, very busy. Good, yes. Well, we're very glad that you're able to come in and so uh, talk Untouchables. And uh, you have seen Untouchables. Yes, I have. Although I literally had to check this morning mm. that it was the film I was thinking of and right. that I had actually seen it. There have been so many times that I'm like, wait, have I? Or am I confusing it for something else? Okay. But you have seen The Untouchables. I have seen Excellent, it. good. And joining us as our person who hasn't seen The Untouchables, uh, making his second appearance in the podcast, it's Mr. Dean Lovett. Welcome back, Dean. Hello, thanks for having me. And just a reminder for the folks at home, uh, what do you do? Uh, I guess uh, actor, performer, comedian. So, The Untouchables. Mm. Uh, according to the back of the DVD case I am holding, it is... That's some great research. Unforgettable. Kevin Costner, Sean Connery and Robert De Niro give career-defining performances Mm -hmm. in Brian De Palma's classic crime story of the Depression era's most infamous mob boss and the law enforcer who vowed to bring him to justice. Uh, Dean, aside from what I've just read on the back of that DVD case, Mm. what do you know about The Untouchables? Absolutely nothing. Uh, I know Sean Connery uh, played James Bond. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I'm hoping this is the film where he wore that interesting bikini number oh, with the leather stuff. I'm afraid it isn't. Uh, I didn't think so. That's not really uh, the, or, period specific. I think it was it? in the director's cut. Oh, of course. <laughs> no, yes. I, oh, we don't yeah, have the director's no, cut. Sorry. No. Uh, but So you're coming into this fresh-faced, uh, no idea what's going to happen. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm hoping some guys say, wise guy, eh? Uh, there's some trumpets, maybe, during while they discuss... Organized crime and probably someone gets shot with a Tommy gun. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if those things happen, I think I'll be satisfied. All right, we'll try and uh, tick them off the checklist as we go. And uh, Katrina, uh, with the Untouchables, mm-hmm. um, now that you've ascertained that you've definitely watched it, <laughs> yes, um, it, it doesn't maybe 
sound promising as a memorable film, I suppose. But no. what what are your uh, recollections I, of this film? I I saw it reasonably recently. I remember watching it with with my partner because we have kind of developed over over our relationship. We've developed this habit of on Valentine's Day we watch quite violent films. Mm-hmm. I think one year we watched Fantastic. the original Mad Max because right. I hadn't seen it. Um, which is, you know, great date night movie. <laughs> Mad um, Max was like 90s violent. You know, it's like not that violent. You'd need to rewatch it. <laughs> it was pretty, pretty graphic. Um, yeah, so I think we watched it on, on one of those occasions, or at least I watched it with him because he had seen it and I hadn't. Um, so, yeah, I don't... I remember getting quite bored Okay. So I don't know if maybe maybe I just didn't have a good day that day. I'm looking forward to it. Mm. Um, uh, but yeah, and I think part of the reason why I was like, oh, I'm not sure if I've seen it or I haven't, is because it blurs the lines a lot in some of the stereotypes and some of the ways that it approaches story mm. um, with Godfather. With yeah. Godfather. And also, Which there's a, yeah. uh, Godfather, Godfather came out uh, the around the same late, time. Late 70s. There's a bit of a time difference between the two. Uh, Godfather was in the 70s, and this yeah, is towards right. the end of the 80s. Yeah. Um, right. And also, there's a few actors from The Godfather which are in this film mm. as well. Um, yeah. And it deals with, you know, a similar. Yeah, similar topic. Topic, yeah. yeah. Uh, although, again, set in <clears throat> different eras, this is 1920s, uh, yeah. whereas Godfather obviously was later into the. Uh, 40s, 50s. 50s. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, shall we give it a watch? Yes. All right. Yes. All right. Excellent. All right. Uh, those of you at home, uh, keep your DVDs close and your cups of tea closer as we uh, prepare to watch The Untouchables. Welcome back, everybody. So we have just finished watching The Untouchables. And yes. by we, I mean Mr. Dean Lovett. Hello. And uh, Miss Katrina Johnson. Hello. And uh, myself, Stephen Platt. And so we, yes, have just finished. Guys, what did we think of The Untouchables? I now remember why I thought it was boring. Did you find it boring? Well, not so much boring, but I don't think it should be considered a classic. Okay. I think, yeah, I think it doesn't tick all of the boxes for a classic. Like there was, uh, there was some great scenes. Uh, and I think especially the ones that are based on true stories, you're like, Oh yeah, cool. It's a bit more interesting. Although to be honest, a lot of the, the best scenes were definitely not based on true stories. Mm. Uh, with the exception of maybe that guy getting killed with a baseball bat, as yeah. you told me. Yeah. Uh, the music kind of drew me out of it. It was a little cliched at times, mm. but so Dean, obviously you, you hadn't seen this film before. Mm. Um, was it, was it a good film? Was it an enjoyable film? Yes, uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, I don't know if I would have maybe stuck through it had it not been for this podcast. Okay. To be brutally honest, but I'm I'm quite... Uh, I can be a bit... Um, I have a bad attention span for watching things on my own. No, okay. I kind of agree with you in that. Um, like, I... It's pretty rare that I'll stop a film unless, mm. you know, I, I have to go do something immediate. Like, I don't know. I think the last go to time, work or whatever. Last time I actually just genuinely went, yeah, I'm done with this, was Pompeii. Oh, oh really? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. And that was terrible. Um, but I could definitely see myself playing this movie on one screen whilst 
doing other mm. things on another screen of my computer. You know? Yeah, yeah. Really. I mean, I, I mean, coming back to this, I I last watched The Untouchables in like a film studies class, mm-hmm. um, and because I, I remember very specifically, and this was like high school film I studies. Can see that. Um, yeah. And yeah, yeah, the the reason we didn't obviously watch the whole thing, but uh, the uh, film teacher, Mr. Meacham, I think. Uh, mm. Hi, if you're listening. Shout out. Uh, shout out, Meacham. <laughs> but yeah, um, he showed us the scene of um, Robert De Niro as Al Capone at the beginning, where you have the shot from the beginning. Yeah, the shot from mm. the That was a good shot. Uh, and then that just that initial scene where he, he's being he's being full-blown Al Capone, yeah. uh, essentially, where he's like, he's charming, but he's threatening at the same time. Mm. And then the barber cuts him and he yeah. looks like he's about to like, yeah, and they and they're like, oh, do you can see yourself a violent person? And you see him get nicked, yeah, and he just like looks yeah. at that guy like, uh, see the whites you know, of his eyes, like, uh, and then he goes, no, not at all. Like, I'm a businessman. I just death stared this dude, but no, I'm not violent. Yeah, yeah. I I did like that that uh, opening shot, and to be honest, I I really like in this film uh, as a positive, uh, De Niro as Capone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, De Niro is anything is normally pretty good. I, uh, have you seen I Meet found... the Parents? Uh, I have, yeah. and uh, he is fantastic. All okay. right, that is okay. Oscar worthy. For okay, <laughs> fine. Um, I found I realized something part of the way through. Um, De Niro as Al Capone, he is a character in monologue. Mm. Um, yeah, he really he, is. He, he, he does he, not interact that much. No one bounces he, off him. He speaks to other characters, yeah. but um, it's very rare rare that he has an actual conversation with them yeah he does a lot of talking at people yeah um, and or just generally like this is my ideology and i think it's interesting that like, i don't think you could get away with that if it wasn't the fact he was playing al capone because yeah. the audience uh, comes to the film knowing who mm. al capone is yeah because pretty much everyone knows al capone he's yeah. the quintessential and mobster i don't think mm. people really in many ways like no one would really have known the names of the guys who got al capone I yeah. mean, if you would, if you were really mm-hmm. paying attention, you might have. But it's it's just like uh, the guys who got oh, what's his name, drug lord, uh, Pablo Escobar. Yes. Yeah. And they they're doing a speaking tour or something at the mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. They were on the project, and mm-hmm. nobody's ever heard of them. Right. Um, exactly. They're just the guys who caught out. Yeah. yeah. And indeed, like Elliot Ness is now somewhat well known, mostly because of this film. Yeah. But Elliot Ness, um, in in reality, you know, he died in the fifties. Mm. He was he was in his fifties when he died. Right. Uh, and he. How did he die? Um, I, I I'll, I'll be honest. Probably I don't smoking. exactly know, but he was. Um, he was broke. Cholera. He was broke. He um, he had been through three marriages at that point. Wow. He had quite a sad uh, life, to be honest. He just um, couldn't stop pushing people off buildings. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean that you got a taste for it. Uh, yeah, we, we will get to that. But um, <laughs> but yeah, in reality, Elliot Ness only got fame from the book called The Untouchables, which he mm. did help write. Uh, mm. It was something he was working on when he when he died. Yeah. Um, and then that book was published and became a TV series called The Untouchables, and mm. it was all about getting Capone. And then, yeah, obviously Brian De Palma makes this film, yeah. and it, it's considered one of the the gangster classics, I guess. Yeah, I think I can see why you studied it in film class because mm. the, yes. the actual shots mm. yeah. were great, and Even some of those extended cuts. There, uh, there the was long ones. there was one point where I was like, because um, for those of you who have listened to the episode I was on before, I'm also an English teacher. I was like, this would be great for teaching conventions film conventions mm. in a mm. um, class because they're so obvious yeah yeah actually I, to be honest then and, and that's where i think they'd faltered the the music was i don't know if maybe that's because modern cinema has changed but 
every bit of music was so on the nose. It was no, like, I this is just, tension, this is happy, this is sad, this is like... It just lacks subtlety. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, that, uh, that said, uh, I think we all agree that the theme tune was very good. Um, yeah. Yes. Because yeah. when that was playing, you know, uh, you were getting right into it. Yeah, the title sequence was great until it didn't end. And then I was yeah. like, let's get on with the film, you know. Yes. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I do agree. I think a lot of the music that was used was uh, not so much on the nose as like living on the nose. And a lot of a hard cuts. house on the nose. Oh, the, yeah. The whole you know, thing was on the nose. There was a lot of hard cuts. Mm. You know, there was a lot of like, like, it was like it went from a child exploding to hard cut to, oh, we're a loving family. Yes, and like, I'm making your lunch. It's, it's jarring. like, And Wrapping it's, it's jarring in a way that makes me think, is it deliberate? Did he want that emotional whiplash? Or I think he did. did he just not have time to let it that moment no, sit I, before I changing? would say, I would because it was so frequent, I would say he did. He mm. wanted that deliberate. And mm. a, lot, a lot of the violence in this film is very sudden, you know, because yes. it's all guns and explosions in terms mm. of when the violence happens. We don't really see anyone get stabbed or have a sort of slow death with the exception of um, Malone, played by Sean Connery. Yes. But even then, it's... He gets Tommy Gunn to death, so mm. you know we see very, very violent. He's action. Sh- yeah, he's shot very. The violence happens in a very short amount of time, but it is just very brutal. Mm. Um, in that, yeah, in that condensed space. Yeah. Um, whereas I, it was interesting. There was one point the the scene with the um, baseball bat, like killing mm. the gangster with the baseball bat. I've just recently gone into the um, TV show Luke Cage. Which mm. it's, is also very brutal. And mm. I was just thinking how a similar scene did happen in Luke Cage, just like, well, similar to that. Mm. But the difference I found is this is actually less bloody. Yeah, I, I wonder if that was... Because to a certain extent, like, I, there was still plenty of blood. But, for example, when the, the girl blows up right at the start, mm. um, I was thinking, like, oh, this is going to be, like, Saving Private Ryan level yeah, where, like, you see, bits of her. you see bits fly off in different directions or, like, um, when the accountant, who was a total badass, yeah. uh, out of nowhere, uh, when he gets shot, it, it, it cuts away. And even when we come back to see him, you don't see a big hole in his head. You just see, like, a little bit of blood in his you know, Although head. it is kind of creepy, him hanging off oh, yeah. the little... So, in the elevator. but then they they didn't seem to shy away from bad guys getting like showing a bad guy, you know, getting shot in the head or something like that. You I know? have a feeling that's something to do with, or at least it used to be, like a respect. Something to no, something to do with um, uh, the rating system, um, and the moral code behind films that is right. that, that does govern well. Or at least used to. It's almost in that elevator American scene. It's films. like it's two seconds apart. It's like we see one guy. We watch the bullet go through his head. Yeah, and then cut away from the second one. And but that that might be because more it's it's you know it's showing respect to yeah, the character it, that is we, it that we care about unspoken like oh we we don't what we needs to be like oh sad you know yeah uh, you know you see Sean Connery get plugged full of holes but really it's just a lot of blood mm. followed by opera <laughs> yeah and he's. He's still alive at the mm. end of it. He still has that closure moment of yeah. with um, Kevin Costner's character mm. with Elliot Ness. Mm. Yeah. yeah, just looking up the certification for uh, the Untouchables in Australia, where yeah. we are watching this film, is an M rating. Um, so 
mm-hmm. as com- compared to the United States, where it had mm. an R when it was first released. Oh, yeah. mm. It was rated R. So Interesting. I yeah. don't think this would get an R nowadays in the States. Oh, no, no way. I don't think it would either, but I think maybe they would have liked to aim it for an R to make it yeah. go, oh, this is an R-rated gangster yeah. film by Brian De Palma. Yeah. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. people would want to see that. Um, um, no, what, what I was more referring to, which I think this film actually comes, it's, it's a bit later than when this actually would have affected, is for a while... Hollywood was governed by a moral code. It was actually, yeah, yeah stratified where, mm. you know, good guys had to win. Uh, bad guys needed to lose and they mm. needed to lose in very particular ways and they mm. needed to show things in particular ways. Um, like they couldn't show um, people kissing for certain amounts of time, mm. things like that. Mm. And um, this was released in... Uh, 87. Yeah. So it's probably okay. quite a bit later so than something that, that I'm referring to. Yeah, older than I thought. Yeah. Um, so let, let's talk Elliot Ness. Uh, mm-hmm. who is, of course, the lead character in this film, played by Kevin Cosner. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what did we think of, of him as a character? I found him quite emotionless. Mm. Yeah, he was definitely... I think there was a bit There was a bit of that in like the 80s and 90s anyway, with the, the, the lead. The brooding hero. Yeah, and a lead needs to show no emotion, so we impart emotion upon them. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, they're, they're an everyman because... They react. They don't react, and we yeah. can assume their their inner thinking thoughts. Uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I mean, if I had to say it, I'd think it maybe a little boring. Yeah, I mean, he, he kind of reacted to everything in the way you would expect him to react to everything. Yeah. Yeah. Like the the cool people are Stone and Malone. Yeah. Um. Sean Connery. Yeah, Sean Connery, because he's a no nonsense mm-hmm. Irish, little, little with bit a, of a Scottish wild card. accent yeah. cop. And then Stone with a... He's from Southside. And mm. if... What about the accountant, though? He was great, too. Yeah, oh, yeah Oscar but he's, he's... Who just turned into Rambo being, in that one scene. He's being influenced by the others. Mm. Whereas Stone, he's from Southside. He's he's grown up. He's grown up in like similar circumstances to Capone. Yeah. He's from the streets, Dean. Yeah. That, that's, that's very the, much what that's it is. That's the suggestion. <laughs> well, yeah. If he was an Italian around that time, he would have had a pretty hard upbringing. Well, yeah. the specific thing that he said, he's from Southside. Yeah. Goodwill Hunting, mm. the character of Will is from. He's a Southie, mm. and and that's the connection that yes. mm. um, that. Uh, so it's like a point of pride, it. but also like a, yeah, it's a point of pride. It's it's low socioeconomic, yeah. um, mm. mean streets, mm. kids get smacked around by the parents, kind mm. of thing. Yeah. It's like being from okay. Rockingham here. I'm yeah, because yeah. He, actually his character he didn't get. Pretty much much to do. It was almost like they they were like, here's a character, and then they're the first big fight, and he takes a you know he takes a hit to the shoulder, and he's out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then later he on, he just he just group. yeah he just huh. shows up and goes, I'm crazy good, and it's okay because they kind of did say he was crazy good at the start. Yes. Yeah. And they kind and of they established did show that. that. But he definitely felt like he just didn't get really any screen time. Maybe mm. that's because he didn't die. <laughs> Potentially, um, but I think it is telling that we started this by talking about Elliot Ness, and we immediately talk about all his amazing friends who are more interesting. <laughs> yeah. Like he isn't very interesting. He yeah. is very much um, watching this. I'm just thinking of Rex Banner from the Simpsons uh, episode Homer vs. Yeah. the Eighteenth Amendment, which is very much based on. I'll this, get you, this film. beer baron. Yes, exactly. So no, you won't. <laughs> I, yes, I cannot I recall will. that that particular mm. episode. Yeah, well, it's essentially just this emotionless, like by the book caricature yeah. of a city official, and we do see his character 
changed by both his friends. Like, because mm. obviously Malone's a, you know, a bit streetwise. He's willing to shoot a corpse in the head to trick someone into giving a confession, for example. Yeah. Uh, but he's also influenced by the people they're fighting against, like mm. Capone and the um, smooth criminal guy who um, mm. who kills uh, Malone and um, and Wallace. Uh, you know, he ends up. He's been so transformed that by the end of the film, he gets he throws him off a building because he makes a quip about the way he killed Malone. Yeah. And that Ness just loses it and throws it. That throws was him off an the interesting building. one. I'm wondering why he didn't just shoot him. Because um, he, he was climbing because down. Because he could, I think uh, it would be uh, plausible deniability. So mm. along those lines. Uh, that he could, he could say, we were chasing each other and he fell off. Yeah. And also, like, at, this, but, at that point, he's he's very much kind of like, he, he's being tested, he's being pushed. Like, these yeah. people have gone for his family, they've they've killed two of his friends by this point, mm. um, they've tried to kill him several times. And now, and, and what are the rules of... with, like, if someone's running away, can you shoot them to stop them? I mean, like, sure, isn't that the thing? Like, uh, stop or I'll shoot? I don't know. Yeah. I'm afraid neither no. of us were police officers in the 30s. No, we well, neither of us. And neither of us are lawyers. No, so uh, unfortunately, yeah, right now, we cannot give you any legal advice any on Any lawyer friends I'm, I'm going to say that I reckon know. he could have shot him and said he was he was fleeing, but I, and I, I, if but, I didn't, he would have got away. But in terms of the character, I think at that point he was making a decision. Like, you know, he did the classic, the gun shake. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. He's, yeah. There, he's there going like, I don't know. He's like, oh, if I shoot him, I'd just become a bad person. I need to be the good cop. And mm. then he's like, okay. You, he's like, I want... Mm. And he, he tells him, he's like, I'm going to watch you burn. You know, it's like you're going down. And then the guy makes one last quip about the way that Malone screamed like an Irish pig. And then he throws it, him off the building. It simply could be um, he knew throwing someone off a building would be more painful. Yeah, yeah. He he could. You reckon it was premeditated? I mean, that's a whole other thing. Well, if it was, then you could say he was nest up. You could, uh, you could say that. Yes. Yeah. You know, I might edit laughter in there. Uh, might, w- would you say that his actions were necessary? Or ooh, ladies and gentlemen, that's an excellent one. <laughs> Five points to Mr. Um, Dean Lovett. Uh, so I'm. I'm oh. we, so we have Ness, the the boring Elliot Ness. We have his even more boring uh, postcard family. Um, the, the Who we only ever see the wife look concerned oh. when, but like, but that kind of smile concern. That, that, yeah, that like these these vapid like um, uh, like Bechdel test failing. How dropouts. many how many women in this film actually spoke? Uh, uh, one, Mrs. Is Elliot one. Ness, um, the the mother of the kid who got killed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the, kid. Oh, the, the kid. Yeah, Mister, you girl. forgot you. Yeah. Um, that's three. That oh, kid had a the, bigger role. Yeah. The the mother in um in the train station. Yeah. The baby. Yeah. And uh, Ness's wow. daughter did it. They're really. Yeah. They're really like. I mean, we we briefly said this uh, when we were watching. It was the old um, woman. Uh, what is it? Wom- uh, girl in the refrigerator. Girl in the refrigerator. Yeah. Chope from comics, which is this idea that. Um, especially it's you know a little while back, less and less so these days. Thank God. Hopefully. Uh, that women in, in these kind of things only exist as like a, a, a plot device to motivate yeah. the men. Yeah. They need to protect them. They need to uh, re- yeah. avenge them. They need to, you yeah. know. But, but they have no other purpose in the story. The whole reason that... Uh, They're example, a moral counterpoint. Yeah. yeah. yeah the, whole, the whole point of having Mrs. Ness in this story is to have something for Capone to use against yeah. Elliot. That, he feels and I think also to to show that Elliot is a genuinely good person. A oh, good upstanding like, American. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, he, he's got he's, the nuclear he's family. He's the epitome of the the model American. Yeah. Whereas you compare it to Capone, and we noted it in these jump cuts from you'd see graphic violence, and then it would cut Excess. to a family scene with Elliot. The only other time we saw that was graphic violence cut to a scene and Capone watching the opera. Mm. And mm. I think that's making a very clear statement about the difference between uh, Elliot and Capone. He, Elliot is showing that he is, he, he walks the walk and he talks yeah. the talk. Whereas Capone, and he says it right in the first thing, he's like, I'm a businessman and him going to the opera, it's, it means he's civilized and he's a, yeah. good, he's, he's a good person. He's not a mobster. He's in, not. He's not a criminal. They're really juxtaposing in terms of their uh, their status. You know what I mean? Mm. Like he's a kind of no nonsense family man. Uh, we never see him doing anything too flashy. His suit is kind of regular, whereas Capone's excess, excess, excess. You know, we only we see him drinking champagne. And again, I think that is probably see him with like three jackets on. You I know, think like, that is in some ways that is also making a comment on how Americans view themselves. They. Opera is working class man. Yeah, mm. they 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 idealize the working class mm. man, particularly when this film was made in the eighties. Mm. Um, although at the time they also were idealizing like the Gordon Gecko of their society, mm-hmm. but you know the working class man, the men who built America from the ground up, mm. and with these immigrants. On, yeah, that was just As the, like, he puts yeah. together the the American everyman puts together a kind of a team of arguably two of the most uh, uh, prevalent races at the time, uh, the Italians and the Irish. Well, within within Chicago and within a lot of the yeah uh, major cities in, in, to a former kind of a team and an accountant of course yeah. uh, to form a kind of a team to take down this ode to crooked, you know. Mm. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it is interesting that they You'll have that. But, I mean, all the people in the mob were basically Americans. Al Capone, at the very least, is from Brooklyn. So, mm. you know, yes. <clears throat> he is, you know, just as much an American. But I think it's interesting that, that Capone does have these tendencies towards cultural uh, touchstones that we don't consider to be American, like nah. opera, for yeah. example. Mm. That's very much considered uh, elite American at the, at the very best, uh, but very much a foreign uh, art form. Yeah, mm. definitely. Did we figure out what were the um, what was the opera that they were watching? No. I believe I've seen it, but I can't recall the name. Oh, I'll oh, have well. a look and look back at that. I imagine <clears throat> I imagine IMDb might be able to help us mm, with yes. that. So we then have uh, what I wrote down as the Canadian whiskey bus scene, where they break in with a cool battering ram car into the uh, the <laughs> warehouse, mm. and he breaks he has open a the white crate. bread sandwich. Yeah, opens up the uh, crate, and instead of finding whiskey, it's uh, imported uh, parasols. Yeah, and he he looks like a complete parasol when he yeah. uh, opens it up. Um, also, those crates looked like they were clearly filled with nothing. Like, well, mm. the bottom one, at least, when like he they tipped were made those from two cardboard. Mm. And also the door that he ramps mm. through. Yeah, opens. Cool it truck, though. It doesn't exactly splinter. It yeah. just, just kind of goes, and it's open. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the, the car was cool, at the very least. Well, it was a snowplow. Mm. It's, mm. it's even it, Yeah, it's mentioned in the, when those two cops are going. And then he says out of the snowplow, we're off to do some something great, or whatever mm. the line is. Mm. Um, mm. And I'm just like, it, it just... I reference I spoke reference Mad Max before before yeah. we watched it and I'm like 
It's like it's like it's that straight out of Mad Max. This was something I thought when I was watching it because you reminded me of when they come across the reporter there and he almost mm. blows the whole thing. Mm. Um, well, I guess it was, it was blown from the start, but uh, it seems like you can see from watching this, and obviously this is fictional, but you can see why police organisations they don't include the press anymore, and mm. it's they don't give individual well, glory to people. You know what I mean? Like I think that's. You kind of see um, within this the relationship between criminals, media, and the police, and I think you see you see that in a lot of mobster films. I find mm. it, the media glorifies the the mafia and demonizes the police, and the mafia and the police almost use this use the media as their little mm. t- like tug of war. Well, mm. it seemed at times. I mean, when they were going after, was it? The accountant at the end that they had to catch at the train station? Yeah. Oh, the, the bookkeeper. The bookkeeper. Yeah. Um, it said, like, you know, a warrant issued for bookkeeper. And I'm like, mm. would they have necessarily Subpoena found issued. out? Subpoenaed. Would yeah. they have necessarily found out they were looking for the bookkeeper? Oh, yes. Mm. The As American films are actually reasonably accurate in the fact that the American police um, and American organisations are not very good at not telling the media things. Mm. Mm. Um, there is a reason why the London Metro Police stopped communications with their American compatriots um, after the last London terror attack mm. because they things had already been released to the media. Mm. Speaking of media, what did we think uh, <laughs> about the gross abuse of... Newspaper headlines for exposition. Well, uh, look, they weren't spinning. Yeah, uh, I, and I, I think that was the only yeah. thing that was missing. I feel like that might have saved it for me mm. if they'd done that. No, would have made it a bit too cartoony. Mm. But I, I mean, I mean, you're referring specifically to the scene at the end where Elliot Ness is like uh, after the court case. Throughout, he's, he's going through um, this this file and just all these headlines he's cut out uh, mm. that just say, you know, like Ah, Capone's getting eleven years, that kind of thing. Yeah. But they did establish at the beginning uh, after the failed um, Canadian whiskey bust mm-hmm. uh, when he takes that headline that someone stuck to his door and puts it up on his pin board yeah he yeah. does establish that he collects these headlines so mm-hmm. at least it has a it, it like it, it has a through line it has a through line it makes yeah. sense within the world but at the same time it is a little like you say the spinning newspaper thing um although at least it was better than all the exposition yeah. that i think we mainly got from ness as mm-hmm. well mm-hmm. like when when they had the scene with the Mounties, mm. right? this oh. is what we're going to do, and this is why we're going to do it. And blah, 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 blah. The expositional Canadians, yeah. Oh, Canadians. And I mean, I I have to say though, uh, I had forgotten about the the essentially magnificent seven uh, cutaway that we get uh, I... within within the Canadian Mountie scene. That was one of the moments where they they got me oh, when they were all riding up on the horses. I was like, okay, yeah, cool. Like yeah. Yeah, I'm, 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 until we got to the actual kind of shoot 'em up, and then it felt a bit silly. Yeah, but it was it was exciting. It was you know it was it was adventurous. You know there were people with shotguns and there were Tommy guns and guys yeah. on horses. Like it was fun. Like they were and having fun car with glass it. just absolutely getting shattered. Yeah. My biggest criticism though, and I I feel like I, I get like you can forgive them when the main characters don't get shot. Mm. Yeah. But when there's like twenty mounties coming down a very narrow path, and you can clearly see two guys are unloading Tommy guns yeah. in that direction, you're like, show me. One or two guys taking yeah. it, or a horse like, going, Ooh. yeah, that kind Just, of thing. Yeah, impressive horse noise. Why? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, although I think that it could be argued they maybe they did do that, but it ended up on the cutting room floor. Maybe 
maybe it was a budgeting thing. I mean, maybe. it's very hard to coordinate scenes like that with horses, or maybe, people falling off and stuff. Maybe because I feel like I feel like that whole scene. I really want to go back and see what Canadian American relations were like at that point. <laughs> I um, think, in I think like Canadian... at the at the point of the film when the film was being made, not mm. the point of the thirties. Because I feel like there's just all these I little like, digs at the Canadians. I feel like definitely at the time, like the Canadians were the butt of jokes. And they still are. Yeah, they say. still are, particularly I don't Americans. approve of your methods, Ness. Well, you're not from Chicago. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, just how's like, that? Yeah. Which... How's that? That's like, a bad it's line. Just, it's just, again, I think he's they're backing up this American sensibility of themselves. What? They're and the like, ones that take no prisoners. But like, you, read, like, you read between the lines on that. It's like, I don't like it when you desecrate a corpse, Ness. <laughs> Oh yeah, well I'm from a place in America. That's, I don't like it dialogue. when you don't um, adhere to due process yeah, yeah. and police procedures. Oh yeah, well America. This is my address. <laughs> That's yeah. my counter. It's argument. like, isn't that great? Like I love it when people do that. Yeah. One thing we did note with those action sequences, though, um, is that, at least with, uh, Katrina, as we were watching it, you said mm. that they they weren't great. Like they they weren't for, yeah. for something that I thought start, the, the stylizes gun, itself the as gun an play, cool The gunplay was good. quite good. I think it, it captured in a sense, particularly in that bridge scene, it captured in a sense how um, messy those sort of things get. Mm. And obviously I'm not speaking from experience, but mm. from what I've heard from, you know, cops who have retired or military people or whatever, when they have been speaking about uh, the layperson's perspective of... Mm what a fight is like, mm. it is very messy. Mm. And they're like, it's it's not very clean cut. And it's... and It's it, it the, is just people yeah. firing. It is just people firing wildly and randomly and hoping that mm. they get the right person. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that train station scene was probably their best action set piece. Mm. Oh, uh, yeah. And not just because of the pram. And you guys said that like that was now a bit of a... It's a bit of a trope that gets used. It has been uh, definitely... Um, definitely in like the, the five, ten years after The Untouchables came out, it was... I just think The Untouchables overdid it. Yeah. I know it was definitely done in one of the naked gun films. They definitely yeah. built up to it like so much. With the gunfight in the train station, mm. I think what they were establishing with showing the civilians uh, and the sailors getting uh, shot mm. was that they were all being shot by the mob. Like, it was very much showing that the mob yes. was the destructive force. We never mm. saw uh, Stone or Ness shoot... Accidentally. Accidentally yeah. shoot anyone. And, like, you know, some of those mobsters, they weren't... They were trying to shoot Ness. Um, you know, they weren't trying to shoot these people. They just kept getting in the way while he was mm. trying to stop this pram falling down. Mm. So, uh, but I think it was showing that, you know, all oh, the mob's dangerous and it's destructive because it killed yeah. these people. Yeah. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I'd, it's, it, it was a well put together they sequence did, though. It was. I will say they did do a good job of establishing that the issue was the, the men and the, and the violence involved. Mm. Because in many ways, like they, the alcohol was like this side thing and you could easily argue that the concept of prohibition was actually the real villain in historically was the real bad choice because it led mm. to all this but the um, way that like every character you know you would sneak a drink from that cast that had a hole yeah. in it or mm. sean connery had a whiskey hidden in his yeah, oven well, like... I, I think that's why ness has that speech at the beginning mm. he says we've got to be we've got to demonstrate even if we don't agree with the law, we've got to demonstrate that we. Yeah. That and then we at the end, he's, he, at the end, they're like, "Oh, they're going to repeal prohibition." And he goes, "I guess I'll go have a drink then." You know. Yeah, because he's mm. like, "Well, it's not illegal now, so I'll go do it." And it's interesting uh, when we were doing the <clears throat> IMDb trivia troll. Uh, any police officer seen drinking alcohol on screen is killed in the film. Oh. Is that true? Yeah, I was. I, I read so it. The accountant. 
get Sean Connery. Yeah. Mm. And, and we never see the young. We never see the young guy drink. And we never see uh, Ness take a drink. No, so, we don't. Yeah. He, yeah, he, he just says, well, I'll go get a drink. <laughs> yeah. I'm getting better at these jokers. <laughs> this humor I've heard so much about. What's a quipe? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, one, one scene I did want to touch on was uh, Malone's death scene. Not necessarily mm. the actual shooting itself, but all the lead up where we have a first person perspective mm. yeah. of the mobster mm. staking nice. out his house and then breaking in. Um, I just thought it was wonderful. Mm. It was a really, really well shot sequence. It is. And yeah. I think... Especially considering they wouldn't have had anywhere near the kind of like apparatuses yeah. that modern day filmmakers have for keeping yeah. the camera stable. And like, can you imagine when he just had to climb in the window? Like, mm. to get that one thing... Well, I mean, they, they without... had steady cams. The, the camera... Like, they would have had the, a way of doing they, it. They probably actually would have set up the camera on some sort of track that it would have hung from. Um like yeah. yeah, yeah, they could have. Yeah. Um, it that scene, I think, was where they hit the mark in terms of creating tension. Mm. Mm. Um, like there were so many scenes Seen where you that. could see that they were trying to create massive amounts of tension, like the train scene. Yeah, the, and the, and they weren't doing anything; they just had tensionist music. Yeah, and and, and lots of cuts and mm. things like that. Whereas I think they really hit the mark on that. Um. Mm. I think they could have gotten the tension in the train scene, but it just went too long. Yeah, I think it would have been... Yeah, it's hard to explain exactly where they... I think my general assessment of the film is they did some things really well. Yeah. And unfortunately, they just weren't consistent throughout. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think Which is a shame. Yeah, that's fair. And um, <clears throat> I think I think overall... Uh, is it an enjoyable film? Yeah. Uh, I liked it. Yeah, I... I've seen better gangster films. Though. Yeah, I if think I, to, you know, I think particularly particularly for its length, um, it's it's not worth the length. Really. Yeah. How I, long was it? I, it I just, just it's a hundred and nineteen minute running time. So just under two hours. <gasps> yeah. Oh wow. Did it feel longer or shorter to you? It felt longer. hundred and how much? Two hours basically. Wow. Did it did it feel like two hours for you, Dean? Hard to say. I... I have no concept of time. <laughs> I, and this is, unfortunately, I am um, a millennial, uh, a, you know, I'm a 90s boy, so mm. most of the media I consume is consumed whilst consuming something else. You right. know what I mean? Like, you've got your phone on So you your, have no concept of time. Computer. <laughs> no, um, no, you have a constant concept of time, you know what yeah. I mean? So everything is far more prevalent because everything's like... Cool. What's the time? You know, you have a, um, you can see it. Mm. Whereas when I rarely do, I find myself genuinely sitting down and just focusing on a film. Yeah. And I do think that you can get far more out of a film when you do that. Mm. Uh, so, did this film pull you in in that sense? Like, did did you feel engrossed by the story being told? No. No. If I'm completely honest, but that's. I think the individual events were interesting. I thought the characters were definitely worth following. Uh, yeah. But unfortunately, when it comes down to it, it was... We, we knew how they got Al Capone. It is not worth the sum of its parts. But yeah, but, I, I, but, th I, th I think it is basically a film which is a series of like very good scenes. Yes. Not well put together. And yes. we made that joke early on when the accountant guy goes... We could get him on tax evasion. And they all go, ho, 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 ho. what are you talking about? That's silly. Mm. And then we all went, so this, is this going to be an entire film about them trying to catch Al Capone? And then the last five minutes they go, oh, let's just get him on tax evasion. Mm. 
And it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, but oh, we kind, knew... kind of was. Well, it was them <clears> trying <throat> to make that connection. Yeah, basically. true. Yeah. Um, I guess it's just that we knew that that was what going to happen. And yeah. I think that's one of the issues with these. any movie that has a foregone conclusion. I, th- I think in a way... and. In- Part of the way through, I started thinking about uh, Boardwalk Empire mm-hmm. and how this, that, at, obviously it's a TV show, so it can take longer. That deals with a, the same topic, similar people, mm-hmm. slightly different perspective. Yeah. Um, but in just a, in such a better way. It's made me think of uh, Road to Perdition. If you've ever seen it with Tom no, Hanks. I have not. Fantastic gangster film. Um, so well paced, so well done. You should do it on a future podcast. Okay. Uh, Sounds good. Enthralling throughout, based yeah. on fictional events, but genuinely enthralling. And, and, and mm. they really ramped up the tension because you were like, anyone could die at any time. Do you think, because you said Road to Perdition was based mm. on, like, is fictionalized. Do you mm. think maybe they were a bit too true to the history and didn't... I think maybe, no, because maybe, maybe realistically, realistically, all they did was have Al Capone and a guy who was named after the same guy caught him. Like, do you think in the book he had his his A team? You know what I mean. Well, I, I think I think this concept of the the A team being brought together, um, in, in in terms of being shown as this like heroic squad where we get like the odd shot of them like running down the street holding the guns, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, I think that's very much a, a cinematic technique that shows yeah. you these are the main players. But I believe they were essentially just representing the real life investigation team because the team investigating Capone was more than four people. You know, yeah, yeah. exactly. I, yeah. yeah, and like in 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 all honesty, if. Uh, Sean Connery's character, what was his name? Uh, Malone. Malone was the most effective character in the entire film. Mm. Uh, he pretty much led to everything happening, all the busts. And even after he died, he still led to yeah. the final bust. Mm. Uh, but his character, if you actually think about it logically, if, um, if Ness found his most effective agent on this case... Because he ran into him on a bridge, mm. you, you, that just—that's not real life, you know. That's but, like no, no. I disagree with you. I that's think movie he, magic. No, I disagree with you. Um, <laughs> no, I'm saying those kind of coincidences do happen in real life. I, but mm, I mean, I have to imagine there was more to it than I ran into a beat cop on the bridge, and I just knew he'd be great at helping me catch Al Capone. You know, <laughs> like. Yeah, I mean, I can believe that maybe he went, oh, this guy seemed like a good cop. I'll put him on the task force. And then maybe he showed merit mm-hmm. uh, and he got built up. But like the, the idea that this guy who's leading this you'd, task force just goes, you'd, you, you'd be surprised how people in power are drawn to ideas of serendipity of things just happening. And like, oh, yeah, he, he seems like the right trusting my gut, all that kind of jazz. It just seems like bad police work. Mm. Like. Who should we take? Someone who has proven merits or this random beat cop I ran into whilst having a cigarette? Well, but he's also through the uh, the bu- the dodgy bust that they that he's just come from. Um, he's also realised that maybe he does need to look further yeah. afield. Yeah. Traditional methods haven't worked because they've yeah. led him to this this uh, very embarrassing failure. Yeah. So he needs to pick people up off the street. I guess. Look, it worked. They got Capone. It It did work. I mean, in the movie, it worked. Mm. Uh, I guess that's just my question. It's like, to what extent was that fictionalized? You know? Mm. Well, you'll have to pick up the book of The Untouchables, which is Mm. turning 60, and find out for yourself. Wow. (laughs) It's an old book. 
It certainly is. So, uh, I did a bit of an IMDb trivia troll. Want to hear Yay. some trivia? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Go uh, on. Robert De Niro tracked down Al Capone's original tailor oh. and had them make some identical clothing for the film. That's pretty cool. That is cool. I think that is cool. Do you guys notice that Giorgio Armani was the... Uh, yes. Costume? Well, considering pretty much everyone wears suits, not surprising. Another bit of uh, interesting trivia is that the last survivor of the actual real-life Untouchables, uh, mm-hmm. Albert H. Wolf, mm-hmm. was a consultant on the film and helped Kevin Cosner with his portrayal of Elliot Ness. So mm-hmm. Elliot Ness may have just been a very boring person in real life, potentially. Well, yeah, but you also wonder if like maybe that's just I... studio hype. Like... What, in terms of how boring Ness was? or No, I mean, like, just because you've got some guy, like, you know what I mean? Like, oh, we yeah. paid this guy to come in and consult, but he's not an acting coach. But He's not, he'll just, he'll he have made, a conversation yeah, he, about that, what he was like. But that's then, pretty common for a lot of films. You know, they get, they get story consult, they get scientists yeah. for, to consult that's, on stories yeah, and stuff. But that's what I mean. But, like, that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be perfectly portraying. Oh, you know. no. Because, um, just like, you know, what, what film was it? Um... Brian Cox, the physicist, he consulted on the film Sun- Sunlight? Sunshine? Uh, sunshine. Yeah, sunshine. sunshine. Yes. Mm-hmm. And apparently the science within that film is actually a bit dodge mm-hmm. or sure. a bit questionable. Science fiction. Well, that's the thing. Um, yes, people consult, but there's also a point where mm. movies, actors, directors, mm. whoever will go, no, we're not going to take it in that direction. And yeah. that could mm. be from... That could be the storyline. That could be how a character is portrayed. Performers just like, no, yeah. this is I mean, how I want to play it. Yeah. You go to the doctors for a consultation. He says, maybe jog some more. You go, I'll think about it. You, <laughs> yeah. you don't always take up a consultation. Yeah, you can imagine the, the guy comes in. Now, Elliot Ness, mm. um, he would randomly uh, change pitch and inflection at times. <laughs> uh, and he was also known to uh, pick his nose mm. in front of everyone. Mm. You're not from Chicago. <laughs> Yeah, I could see Cosner maybe going, actually, I'll just do it this way. He's in the car! Uh, Robert De Niro insisted on wearing the same style of underpants that Al Capone wore, um, even though, obviously, they weren't going to show him in the underpants in the film. Unnecessary. Well, the producers gave in and let him have, like, the same type of silk boxes. Does does he... I have a feeling he trained under the actor's studio. Uh, Robert Mm. is method. Yeah. So, yeah, so De Niro that is classically it. method. Like he's like kind yeah. of when people talk about method acting, they're like, "Look at De Niro, he knows." Really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, now the scene uh, where an envelope is dropped on Elliot Ness's desk by yeah. uh, Judge Doom from Who Framed Roger Rabbit, or at least <laughs> someone Mr. that Gap-tooth. looks like him. Yeah. yeah. That's um, where he actually took it from. He took it. He took the envelope out of the gap in his teeth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he keeps yeah, his bribes. Could have just slotted it in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's assumed to be a bribe, uh, but we never actually see that in the film. But in real life, Al Capone promised Elliot Ness that two one thousand uh, dollar notes would be on his desk every Monday morning if he turned a blind eye to his bootlegging activities, which was an enormous amount then yeah uh, ness uh refused that bribe I think and and died uh, broke in 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 the 50s how yeah. much is that if we had to i well to, i think to give some sort of perspective i think the yearly yearly mm. wage of an average worker was in the couple of hundreds at best yearly yearly so to give him two thousand a week Mm. Is is massive. just great. Wow. I mean, so, as as someone wow. who was high up in the police force, he was probably on a higher wage. But basically, yeah. like the the you know, we we hear in the film, um, Oscar Wallace We're saying also that, in nineteen thirty, yeah, so Great Depression and the Great Depression. And you hear right at the start of it as well. And you hear in the film, Oscar Wallace is saying Capone's making three million dollars a year, and it's yeah. only just occurred to me now. 
how much money yeah. that is mm. in that time period. You know, because you hear and, you hear people getting three million now. You're like, oh, that's a low level lottery win. Yeah, and you always you always kind of do that that trope about oh all the crooked cops, you know, and then you go well if you can drop, uh, you know, two times a year's wages or whatever it is a week on someone's desk, then yeah, they'll probably I, turn okay, a blind eye. Okay, so I've just gotten a quick. Quick Google search. Mm. If you had $100 converted from 1930 to 2005, so it's still a bit out, mm. it would be equivalent to $1,200. So that's $12,000. Yes. Wait, sorry. So $24,000 a week is yep. what he was offering him. So if you had a billion dollars, it would now be worth $12 billion. Yes. So he was offering him 24 yeah. grand a week to look the other way. Yeah. And wow. in 1930, average new house cost uh, just over seven grand. So he was turning down a lot of money in real life. Yeah. So, you know, good on you, Nessie. Right. Uh, I feel a little bit, yeah, I feel mm. like he did a good job. I don't mm. know. Yeah. When you were talking about how he'd been through all his wires and stuff, I was like, oh, he's probably just unclorified, you know. Like he, well, he, I, history, I, or, or, history has remembered him fondly for his actions, yeah. but perhaps not. All I know is that he know, had, justified. he was married three times throughout his life and he never actually had any biological children of his mm. own. He had an adopted son. Uh, but he'd never actually had a daughter. That was one of the things that was created for the for the uh, film. Yeah. Um, another fun thing from the IMDb, speaking of paying large amounts of money, Brian De Palma met Bob Hoskins uh, in Los Angeles uh, mm-hmm. to discuss Hoskins playing Capone if De Niro was to pass on the role, because De Niro yeah. was always first choice. Um, De Niro hadn't said yes at the time, so Hoskins said that if he was available, he'd do it. When De Niro finally took the role, De Palma sent a thank you note, and the studio paid Hoskins £20,000, because Bob Hoskins had a pay-or-play deal. So because he'd been offered this role and then didn't have it, he still got paid for receiving the offer. Hoskins apparently then called De Palma and asked if there are any other movies he didn't want him to be in. <laughs> <laughs> so we should probably talk about the fact that uh, despite the final courtroom scene in this film, the real-life Al Capone and Elliot Ness never met face-to-face. Yeah. Never, yeah. Actually, surprise me. never actually met. Yeah, I imagine in, in real life it would have been pretty unacceptable for him as a head of the task force mm. um, to even to be seen because he could be accused of uh, threatening or yeah. it'd just be way too you dangerous. You wouldn't want to. I mean, again, like his whole his whole method was to threaten the families. Like mm. either you're on the take or you're against me, you know. Yeah. Uh, so you basically just want to be like, no, I, I want to be a faceless, figureless bureaucrat. It, mm. it was also to protect the procedure, mm. it, to protect the investigation, yeah. I mean. Can you, can you imagine in court where he's like, oh, he came to my place of residence and threatened me with physical violence? Like, yeah. That's going to mess up things entirely. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, the great thing with an IMDb trivia troll is that you get this list of actors that could have played uh, the lead parts. Okay. Uh, I'm going to say some names of actors who uh, were either approached and turned down the role or were simply considered. Okay. Uh, I just want a simple yes, no, if you would think they would have made a better Elliot Ness than Kevin Costner. Okay, so this is, yep, so this is for okay. the title okay. character. Elliot Ness. Mickey right. Rourke. <laughs> Ooh. Who apparently turned it down? Definitely would have looked ugly. He turned it down, so they offered it to him. Apparently, again, wow. this is this is IMDb trivia page. It what? may not be the most uh, accurate source, but the, the this is always a fun thing. What was Mickey Rourke doing at the time? Well, not the Untouchables. That's that. I'm afraid. Because uh, <laughs> like, yeah. oh, he, oh, I'm just looking at a yeah. picture, reminding myself of what he looks like. I'm like yeah. it, so that's a no to Mickey. No. Okay. No. Um, Michael Douglas. Maybe. Uh, maybe. Who's Michael Douglas? What was he in? Gordon Gecko. 
Mm. He's Golden Gecko. Married to Catherine Zeta-Jones. Um, oh, what else is he in? I can't think of anything right now. We will uh, we'll have to find a picture of him. I'm Googling it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, while he's Googling, Mel Gibson. Well, this would mm. have been around... This is around Braveheart time. Yeah. It's, it's actually nine years before Braveheart. This is oh, uh, okay. This I'm is around familiar. Lethal Weapon time. Oh, okay. Uh, so still, still within his. He turned this down to do Lethal Weapon. Oh, good uh, choice. Good yeah. choice for him because I think he is. Although he is a very good dramatic actor, at least he was back then. Mm. Um, he needs that those comic moments to break it up. Harrison Ford. Well, that that's the thing. Didn't I mention this during when we were know. watching this? I was like, oh, why did I, I feel bring like it? Oh, that's right. I, I, different movie. That's right. I said, oh, I imagine it was Kevin Costner ever considered fit Indiana Jones because yeah. there is this really nice repartee between mm. him and Sean Connery. I th- mm. I think it would have made Elliot Ness a lot more interesting. Mm. I, think. I think it would have been a very different character. Mm. Yes, very. Different. Yes, it would have been. Because Harrison Ford, you know Harrison Ford wouldn't have been like, oh, I want to play him as he was. He would have been like, no, I'm going to be Harrison Ford. Mm. Yeah. You know. Just like Sean Connery is, I'm going to be Sean Connery. Yeah. Yeah. Sean Connery, we need you to, just like in Highlander, when they said, Sean Connery, can you be Egyptian. an immortal Spaniard who originated in Egypt? And he said, sure, as long yeah, as I can change nothing about anything I do. Yeah. And they went, sure. Or Sean Connery, um, can you play Russian? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Just... If by Russian you mean Sean Connery. <laughs> yes. And I, I feel as though some of these are just here to be silly. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Nailed it, yeah. yeah. Can you imagine? Like You're obviously not from Chicago. <laughs> you don't... <laughs> You, you don't, what was the line at the end? It was like, you don't finish the fight until it's over. Yeah. You know, like, uh, can you imagine? Yeah. Did it yeah. sound something yeah. like that? No, the baby is falling down the stairs. Oh, no. Do you have the shot? I have the shot. Take it. Take it now. Then get to the chopper. And finally, uh, to finish off this trivia troll. So we did joke about the idea of an Untouchables 2 uh, oh, while we were watching was. it. It was, wasn't mm. it? There had been talk that Brian De Palma was going to direct a sequel entitled The Untouchables Capone's Rising, which was about when uh, a younger Al Capone became into power. Oh, okay. The actor that he wanted to play young Al Capone was Nicolas Cage. <laughs> okay. Although this I is... could watch an opera for hours. The Beast! The Beast! Although, every now and again, Nicolas Cage does come out with some good stuff. Nicolas Cage is hit and miss. He is the definition of a hit and miss actor. Yes. There is no middle ground for Nicolas Cage. Let's score the film. Oh, God. Uh, Dean, as you are our our person who's seen the film for the first time. What's the metric? The metric is out of 10. So, 10 10 being, that was the best film ever made. 10 being District 9, basically. And Uh, uh, 1 being... Uh, good not you. good at all. I, I uh, can't stand oh, oh, mm, I'm going to give it a uh, maybe like a six, seven, maybe six, six. Six. I think seven is maybe a little too high. Six is like saying it wasn't a bad film. It was not the sum of its parts. Hmm. Um, I'm going to give it. I'm going to give it a five um, death glares by Al Capone mm. out of ten. 
Um, mainly because I I feel like this this film is considered a classic on two things. Um, on the history of the genre mm. and the fact that it slots into it quite yeah, nicely. Yeah, yeah. And on the later careers or careers that have already had come up to that point of mm. the performers. Yeah. And like uh, this is the only film for which uh, Sean Connery won an Academy Award. He got Best Supporting oh, really? Actor. Yeah. This. Yes. That won an Academy this, Award? This yeah. It, yeah, he got Best Supporting Actor for playing Gare Malone. What? Wow. Okay, uh, for my score, uh, I again, I, I feel like this is a film which doesn't quite reach that level of like, no. it's not The Godfather. No, it the isn't. The Godfather, like having watched that a couple of months back uh, and now having watched this, you can see why The Godfather is like that next level up of yes. just being mm. a masterpiece of cinema. But neither of is, is this film Public Enemy with Johnny Depp, that, that really terrible gangster film from 2009. I saw that in the cinema and it was not great. Um, so I think it is somewhere in the middle. Like, look, I would probably give it six and a half undeserved best supporting actor Oscars out of ten. Um, it's 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 enjoyable. <laughs> do you, like, do you ever wonder if they just gave Sean Connery the award because they're like, oh, his career's starting to finish, but he's kind of earned it. But he know? he mm. went on when was um League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? Two thousand and three. Oh. So he still had another sixteen so, years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. He really didn't age. Once he got to like old, he just stayed at that age. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. He had his look and he, he kept it going. Sean Connery. Gosh. Uh, but yeah. Thank you. I want to thank the Academy. I'm going to be the hunter from League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yes. I, I think it was um it it's a it's a good film. Yeah. I I think The Untouchables yeah. is a good film. Yeah. Do I necessarily want to watch it again? No. No. Um and that's but that's okay. Mm. Um, and but I do think there are, are other gangster films which do it better. Oh yeah. So okay. yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's interesting because in a way, we mentioned the Godfather. Mm. Um, Godfather was kind of the first of this, you know, revival of the gangster films. I think it was definitely the start of yes, a long a, a, run a, of... of a new type. And mm. it's interesting that. The first of this revival is considered one of the the best, if not one of the best, if not the best. See, I I feel like I feel like maybe I'm a bit of an outlier because Godfather never appealed to me in the same way it seems to have appealed to everyone else. I thought yeah. it was interesting, but not quite. But that's a mm. conversation for another time. Yeah. Indeed. So, uh, Katrina and Dean, thank you very much for uh, watching uh, The Untouchables and being on this podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting thank us, for... Stephen. Yeah, cheers, buddy. No worries. Okay, and for you listening at home, just a reminder, uh, you can find us on Facebook. Yes, you've got one. Uh, just search for the Cinema Catch-Up Club podcast there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can also be found on... Uh, on iTunes or SoundCloud, just search for the Cinema Catch-Up Club and make sure to subscribe and tell your friends about us there. And yeah. uh, if you want more information about the podcast, visit uh, www.thoughtjarproductions.com for information about this and other shows. But uh, that's all for this week. So until next time, bye-bye. Bye. See you. You have been listening to a Thought Jar Productions podcast. For more information, please visit thoughtjarproductions.com.